As we consider our role as a church and meeting people where they are, oftentimes we're, we feel inadequate. We're, we ourselves, like we want to do a good job at helping other people. I think that's what I love about First Church. We have the heart. Our First Church, our, our family just has a heart for helping others, but we have to have the right tools. Now, I want to mention that these three messages, the third of three messages on mental illness, if this is your first time, these are all connected. And so the first week we talked specifically about why it's important for the church to be in the front lines of loving the hurting, the isolated, the lonely, right? The ones that are just, you know, have no clue how to get help in their life. We need to be initiating and investing in those people's lives and answering that why. And then last week we looked at anxiety specifically, and then this week is depression. But we can't, we don't have time to go back into those two, but I still want to answer clearly the why. Why are we talking about this on a Sunday morning? You know, I grew up in church. Many of you did as well. And even 10 years ago, it's like, really? Do we need to talk about that? And I thought that I had an idea of how important it was, but apparently I still had no idea based on the response of the last two weeks, the number of people that are struggling, but also the number of people who want to help those who are struggling on a positive side. And so we have to figure this out. We have to be clear. And so why are we talking about mental illness at church? John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. You will. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus also said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Many of you are desperate for that. That's a promise. And that's at the center of all that we do. Every single message, regardless of what the topic is about, it's ultimately about Jesus and the rest, the grace, the life that he offers. Notice Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who are strong, all you who are cheerful, calm, and untroubled. That doesn't apply to maybe anybody, really, right, on the inside. Like us church people, we're good at putting on a front, having it all together. I feel like we've gotten better, but, you know, the history of the church, typically somebody comes and they see other people that are dressed up and their kids have it all together, they're behaving right, and they're like, well, I don't fit in here because that's not my life. They have it all together. It's like, no, we're actually all broken, together. We're all trying to figure this life out. And so we're invited to come to Jesus as we are weary. Some people, some of you, you're confused. You're numb to life, right? Like there's, you're so far beyond even being able to feel, have the capacity to feel anything of worth or value. You're anxious. Some of you are angry or stressed. And Jesus tells us to simply come, come as we are. So we have the opportunity, especially the freedom that we're offered here in the American church to create a church experience where it's essentially a museum for saints. It's like, oh, what? You're saved? You're saved? All right, we're good. Let's just keep going to church till Jesus comes back, right? It's all good. And we can just do church. It's Sunday. Well, so I'm going to church, just what I do. But we're settling for a low ceiling for so much less than what Jesus has in mind. His vision for us is not that we'd be a museum for saints, but instead a hospital for the hurting. And we're all hurting to some degree, and we need to be open and vulnerable about our certain level of brokenness. So as the church, we're commanded in Romans 12, 15 to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also weep with those who weep. So when you come into this place, you should experience the safest place you've ever been a part of based on the way that people approach you. It's a grace-filled place where we enter into the valley of each other's lives, and we stay there, and we walk together. And here's the valley many people are navigating today. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Another translation says, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. So many of you, you're walking this or you have walked this. 
statistics in the, in the United States, nearly 8% of adults and teenagers report current feelings of depression, but about 16% of people will experience depression in their lifetime. And so we're going to talk specifically about some of your discerning. Okay, well, I feel, you know, we, we use phrases like, oh, I'm so depressed based on a certain circumstance, but what is actual depression? But first, it's interesting because, and I mentioned this last week, mental illness is not selective. We all have different biological makeup. We all have different cultures and environments that we grew up in. And those two factors, which is kind of scary, right? It's kind of humbling, are both outside of our control. And those are the primary factors that can cause mental illness. Two things that are out of our control to a certain degree. And what we see is it's not selective. We can look at around at other people and be like, oh, they, must, they, don't, they don't struggle, they don't suffer. Um, and this, it's interesting from a you know, cultural timing standpoint, I mentioned this last week with Kevin Love and how he's navigating his anxiety disorder and felt shame, you know, instinctively and didn't want to talk about what he was actually experiencing. Another guy, Nick Gepper, relatively local guy, you've heard of him, Lawrenceburg, Indiana, a perfect North Slopes. That's an actual place, you know. Some of you are like, oh, okay, is that, is, that, is that Vail? No, it's far from Vail, Colorado. Come to find out, Perfect North Slopes can produce a two-time medal winner, uh, winner in the Olympics. And so that's Nick Gepper. Grew up in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and started skiing at Perfect North Slopes. 2014, won a medal in the Olympics in skiing, and then won another medal uh, just uh, about a month ago. It was after the 2014 Olympics uh, that he struggled with severe depression. You're like, wait it. That's upside down. That doesn't make sense. He just experienced the pinnacle of his sport, you know, worldwide, right? An Olympic medal, that's a pretty big deal. And so here's a guy who, you know, and he he speaks specifically about the journey that he was on, and his mom spoke into it in the valley that he literally couldn't pull himself out of, right? That's the nature of mental illness, right? It's not, not something that somebody can just, you know, decide to get over. And so he was at the point where he was suicidal, right? After the level of achievement, but he talks about the burnout that he experienced. So he was just kind of always being on, right? And always being up, you know, for people and experiencing that pressure. But here's, here's what he ended up saying uh, when he eventually did get better. He said uh, that talking openly about his depression was part of his healing process. He's like, I got I to gotta, I gotta admit that I'm struggling in this way. And that was part of his healing process. Another guy... NBA all-star, professional basketball player named DeMar DeRozan, plays for the Toronto Raptors. Uh, he's been struggling with depression, right? And so he says this, it's one of them things that no matter how indestructible we look like we are, we are all human at the end of the day. We all got feelings. Sometimes it gets the best of you, and it referring to depression. He's like, nobody's exempt, Right? Like we, none of us can really relate, I'm pretty sure, to these professional athletes. But the point is depression, mental illness is not selective. And so it's a deep struggle that someone just can't pull themselves out of. So what is it exactly when we say depression as a mental illness? Because we have to differentiate. All of us, as we go through life, certain circumstances happen where we feel sad, right? We feel distraught, but it's not full-fledged depression, right? You have some kind of disappointment, setback, illness, you experience loss, Difficulties in relationship, you lose a job, move away from family and friends. Like you're going to have natural feelings of sadness based on circumstance. It's common. It's normal. Now, the death of a loved one is probably the most significant emotional loss someone can experience. So you're going to have sorrow. You're going to have distress. But especially if you miss the last two weeks, here's the differentiator with mental illness. See, the death of a loved one, you know, can send you on a path where you're in the pit, you're in the valley. But a serious condition, depression 
Uh, it's an emotional, emotional, a mental challenge, and it's literally incapacitating. And, you know, it's, not, it's not fleeting, like it's always there. Depression is an illness that affects the whole person. It's physical, psychological, it's a spiritual battle, and it's debilitating in literally every area of your life. It affects your energy levels, your appetite, your sleep, your concentration, level of interest in daily life is affected. It can make you feel so helpless and hopeless that you don't even value your own life. And here's the reality, you know, in the church that we've been directly confronted with, and many of you have lived this out, where you've lost a loved one because they decided to take their own life. And they were in the valley, and they believed that there would only be valley for the rest of their life. And so you, that's the worst kind of loss. And we believe that we can live and love and be the church in such a way where that can no longer happen because people can discover there is actually a hope to be lived out. Now, I want to take just the next few minutes to give a clinical look when we ask, okay, what is depression as a mental illness? And so I know, you know, this is a lot of information. It's on that handout, but it's important to understand. To be clinically depressed, you have to experience uh, five specific symptoms, at least five. And uh, the first two are absolutely essential. One is a depressed mood where you're feeling down. You feel kind of the weight of the world. The second is a loss of interest in everyday life, right? That's why it's debilitating. You literally have no interest in engaging life. Now, it's not just one day or two days. This is for a period of at least two weeks. But it must also have three or more of the following symptoms. So those first two are essential along with at least three more. Three of, uh, of these, these seven here. The first is significant weight loss or weight gain when there hasn't been a change in your eating habits, right? There's no tangible cause. Second, changes in sleep habits, whether it's insomnia, not being able to sleep, or hypersomnia, sleeping more than normal, like excessively more than normal. Another would be psychomotor agitation, which is restlessness or fidgeting, right? Just like all of a sudden, out of nowhere with no cause, or kind of the sluggishness, right? Like you're just this deep, uh, lethargic nature. Another would be lack of energy or fatigue, right? That's chronic over a period of at least two weeks. Another would be feelings of worthlessness, right? Just out of nowhere, doesn't make sense. Or excessive or irrational guilt. Like, why do I feel so guilty? And there's no reason to feel guilty, right? That's part of it. That's another symptom. Another would be difficulty thinking, concentrating, or making decisions. And then the last one is recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. Right, to the point where like, you're not choosing this, you don't want these thoughts, but all of a sudden they, you have these thoughts. So that'd be a significant symptom to pay attention to. Now, it's important to know they must cause significant distress and impairment in everyday functioning, right? Like some of you are like, okay, I have some of that, but I'm able to get through the day to be productive at work. This is literally debilitating. And it also must not be due to physiological effects of a certain substance like medication, Right? Like you have something else going on, they give you medication and you experience some of those side effects. Like that wouldn't count basically. Nor would if you're doing drugs, right? That's a factor that could promote some of these symptoms. That doesn't count. Um, or alcohol, right? If that brings out some of these or a diagnosable other medical condition. So I know it's a lot of dense information, but it's important to clarify. And again, as far as the cause, we have to be clear. Now, let me give you two parts to this. One is the clinical part. Depression results from a deficiency or imbalance in various neurotransmitters, which are the chemical messengers in the brain. This is why the first week we talked so much about the importance of raising the stigma. This is something outside of somebody's control based on their biological makeup and typically biological and environmental factors. That's the other part of it, which is, you know, rewires the brain. It causes significant stress that can lead to mental illness. 
Now, as we turn the corner, it's important to address some of, of how we've gotten it wrong, especially as the church. Because I think that those of us that have been a part of the church for a long time are good at wanting to wrap things up in a nice bow. Somebody comes forward and they have a problem. You're like, well, just pray about it. Just trust God more. Just do this, you know, and, and you'll be fine. And I think if we have a good heart, we just don't really know how to help. And furthermore, we don't have the necessary empathy to meet people in their pain and suffering and be realistic about what they're actually going through. So I want to I put up on the screen a myth that when you first read it, we're like, well, that's actually true. But on the surface level, it's really kind of trite, right? So hang with me. Here's a, here's a common myth that people buy into and they don't find church helpful. One myth is trust God and you'll have peace and joy. If you don't have peace or joy, then you're not trusting God enough. This is where we go off the rails in believing that someone who has a mental illness, the cause of that is a weak faith. Well, you're just not trusting God enough. Like we're disillusioned. If we say that, if we believe that, it's an oversimplification with a whole lot of assumption. Now, being in relationship with Jesus Christ absolutely brings joy and brings a peace that passes understanding. But we have to be careful to, to not be trite about helping someone in their valley. So here's what's interesting. In Scripture, and if you've never read the Bible, you know, this is, you know, some of us that, you know, have been reading the Bible our whole lives, you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. But think about the significance of this. The one guy in the Bible that is described as a man after God's own heart wrote 78 psalms, and over half of those psalms were laments of sorrow and deep grieving. And so some scholars and psychologists will go so far as to say, based on what is written in the Bible, that you, it could be very easily diagnosable as major depressive disorder of a guy named David, the guy who was a man after God's own heart. So what I want to spend the next few minutes doing is reading some of David's psalms, some of his writings. Here's why. Two parts. Those of you that are suffering, you need to know that there's a God who's absolutely relatable. He meets you in your suffering, and he gets it. He's gone through it. And he uses it. The other part is for those of us who fail to have the necessary empathy to realize what people are actually going through, the burden that they are trying to carry. And we talked about the last couple of weeks, our calling as a church is to bear one another's burdens. <laughs> Not just take care of yourself and get through life and look back like, oh, I did it, I pulled it off. No, we enter into the valley, the trenches of other people's lives. We bear one another's burdens. And so I, I love David's reflections because they're honest. And some of you need to get to a point where your first step is just being honest about your struggle, right? And this supersedes even mental illness. So David, he first of all expresses the physical pain that's felt in depression. Remember, this affects all, every part of your life. Psalm 38, he says, I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning, all day long. He says, my back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Now, I'd, I'd hate to know how many of you hear that and you're, you're thinking, well, that, that's my story. Like people found out that I was struggling and they couldn't relate or they weren't comfortable and so they like, they're no longer part of my life because they just didn't want to get too close to me. David lived that out. David also describes the overwhelming loneliness of being trapped in a pit of darkness. Psalm 31 says, be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. 
My life is consumed by anguish in my years. By groaning, my strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. This is a living nightmare. And we wonder, right, David himself experienced this. This is the thoughts that so many people who are considering suicide have. Like everybody's going away. Nobody understands. There is no hope to be found. Psalm 69.8, David says, I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. He also experienced the terrifying spiritual isolation one feels from God. And I, want, I hope this is encouraging to many of you. The fact that you would even give church a chance, that's a big deal. It's, no, it's not a small step. Psalm 13, David asks, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. See, David, it's pretty apparent, he was emotionally paralyzed, right? Like he was incapacitated. It was debilitating. Many of you are emotionally paralyzed as well. But here's what we see in David. This is so important to, to understand. And how he eventually got better is that he decided to take his pain, to take his suffering, to take his daily anguish and bring it, present it to God with blatant honesty. Have you ever done that? <laughs> That's where it starts. God, I'm bringing you as I am, right? There's no polish, right? I'm not pretending to have it all together. God, here I am broken and all. See, here's what some of you are living out. At some point, we will burn out trying to figure things out on our own. We will. Because we weren't created to be competent and capable and healthy on our own. We're just not. And so at some point, you'll burn out. And on a larger level, it's, I think we, if we were to admit, it's pretty exhausting to continually run from God. Because some of you, you've sensed God wanting to be a part of your life, but you're not interested. It's like, well, let, me, let me do my own thing. You know, I don't need God in my life. As if that's really strength when it's not. So you've heard the myth. Here's the truth. According to David, emotional honesty, it's an intimate act of trusting God. It's an intimate act of trusting God with your real self instead of hiding how you feel or trying to do or be more. What are we trying to prove? That we can stand on our own? We're disillusioned. We can't. Some of us guys, we're the, we're the worst at that. So God says, bring who you are. That's what we see in David. It begins with being a part of a church family who says, you know what? That's normal. You come in and you open up. You're vulnerable about your weakness, your struggle. We say, yeah, I'm, I'm broken too, right? It's just the details of our brokenness is what's different. We understand that honesty and vulnerability are direct catalysts for growth to open up. And it's freeing, right? We talk about bearing one another's burdens. That's why it's a burden because you're carrying it when you're not meant to carry it on your own. I think you'll agree it takes a lot of strength to admit where you're weak, right? We get it upside down. It actually takes more strength, more courage to admit where you're weak. I mean, it takes no strength at all to go the route of isolation. That's our default. That's easy. So we can do that. Like, I'm going to go to my corner. I'm not going to open up. I'm going to figure this out on my own. Like, it doesn't work, but it's easier out. So here's what I want you to know today. If you're struggling, don't even think about giving up before you've brought all of your true self. At least give your true self in the context of a safe, grace-filled community a chance. Please, give it a chance. Maybe you've been rejected by all those around you, your family, directly, even your growing up years, even now. But I'll tell you what, you have not been rejected by God. 
you have not been rejected by God. Maybe you had a bad experience, you know, a conversation with a Christ follower or even at a church at large, and they rejected you. Well, they didn't represent Jesus the right way. They got it wrong. That, that was not God rejecting you. That was someone who failed to understand what grace and mercy actually looks like. So where do we go from here? I want to talk first to those of us who are looking to help those in crisis, those who are walking in the valley, and then secondly, those of you who are suffering. Like, we have to get this right. So for those of us looking to help those in crisis, first is this. People with mental illness, particularly those who suffer from depression or bipolar disorder, are particularly at a high risk for suicide. I learned very early on in youth ministry that there's no such thing as a a small or throwaway conversation. You pay attention, right? Like, oh, they'll be fine. They're just in a bad mood. They're just going through something. You don't write anybody off. And so understanding how prone certain people with mental illness can be to taking their own life, how close they are to giving up, we need to take action specifically talking. And so I want to give you three specific questions to ask, right? This is tangible suicide assessment, and this is on that handout that you'll be able to get when you walk out. If for some reason we run out of handouts, email me. We want everybody to have these tools that I'm about to go through. So here's three uh, essential questions to ask if you see these symptoms, you see somebody struggling or suffering. The first is this. Are you having suicidal thoughts or ideas? Have you thought about taking your own life? Now you hear that and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's, that's too bold. Like, that's pretty direct. Research has, fun, has shown, and this is so important to understand, that someone is not more likely to commit suicide if you ask them about suicide. It's the exact opposite because oftentimes people internalize it and then when somebody confronts them and asks them directly, it wakes them up to the reality like, oh, whoa, yeah, right? Come on, we've all been there. When we keep our thoughts to ourselves, we internalize something, it becomes normal, it becomes no big deal. And, you know, somebody starts to think about the possibility of that, but then some, you, somebody is, you know, speaks into your life and, you know, wakes you up like, oh, whoa, yeah, that's, that's a pretty big deal that I would even consider that. That's the first question. Are you, have you considered, you know, do you have suicidal thoughts? Second is this, have you devised a plan to do so? Have they thought about the way in which they would take their own life, right? So you're assessing how serious this is. Third question is, do you have access to lethal means? Pills, weapons, right? Whether it's at at your house or a friend's, have they thought that far in advance? And so if they answer yes to all three of those, like that's green light, go, you're taking action. You're not saying, oh, you know, let me pray for you and have a nice day. No, you're talking to their mental health provider, you're calling the police, you're going to the emergency room, you're calling the church, right? Because we're trying to be better at helping people take next steps to find some hope and healing, right? And so we we take these conversations seriously. And so those are three questions to ask to discern. Second is this, and this is in your bulletin if you open it up at the top left where I normally write that article. There's a QPR training that we're gonna do here at First Church, April 22nd. It's a Sunday at 1 p.m. It's a one and a half um, program, one, one and a half hour program that is, more involved and more thorough of a conversation of what I just described in in three minutes. And so this is a primetime opportunity to understand the level of suffering that somebody is going through and the way in which we can help. And now that's a one and a half hour program, which isn't much time at all. There's another option and there's two dates for this other option, Youth Mental Health First Aid. It's a program put on by the community. It's an eight hour program, which eight hours. I'm sure 99% of the people are not going to do that. But here's the deal. There are some of you that need to do that, whether through your own life experience or because God has placed this in your heart to be on the front lines of helping people who are in the valley navigating mental illness. You can do this eight hour program and get an exhaustive, thorough toolkit, basically, of what's at stake and how you can help. 
right? And that's a pretty good feeling to be competent enough to have an adequate understanding to be able to meet people there and know what to do, right? That's why we're spending three weeks on this. We need to know how to help people when they're in it. Now, the third thing I want to mention for those of us who are looking to help those in crisis is uh, what not to say, right? All of us, right, have stories of, yeah, one time I said that and that wasn't, that wasn't helpful, that wasn't a good thing to say. So here are some things not to say to those who have a mental illness. First, don't say, pull yourself together. I mean, that's a ridiculous thing, like as if they haven't thought about that, right? You say some, you know, to somebody who's struggling this way, hey, pull yourself together. They're not going to be like, oh, well, yeah, thank you. I didn't even cross my mind all this time. I could have just been pulling myself together. I'm reading the wrong self-help books, right? That's such a ridiculous thing to say. Don't say, but you've got nothing to be sad about. Now, this is, and again, we've touched on this the last two weeks. There's the people that struggle with mental illness. They didn't choose it. And the scary thing is there's no tangible cause, right? There's something that may have accelerated or promoted it, but they can't connect. Here's the circumstance that, that caused it. And so it, 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 when we say that, we're communicating how much we actually don't understand because they don't even know why they're sad. Don't say, don't get so emotional. Naturally, there are going to be emotions involved. It's good marriage advice, by the way, as well. I'm sure none of us have, never, have ever failed there. <laughs> Don't say, oh, you'll soon get over it. You'll soon get over it. It places a lot of pressure. They understand they should be further along, right, in getting better. Don't say, it's a sin to be depressed. It's not, right? Don't say, it's a sin to be depressed. There might be some kind of sin circumstance there that made things worse, but to feel those, those, that level of emotion, to be in the valley, to struggle with mental illness, it's not a sin. Don't say, smile, it can't be that bad. What a classic, terrible Christian thing to say, right? Oh, there's, there's happy Christian, right? You know, send me notes. Like, oh, just smile about it, you know, you'll be, you'll be fine, right? Like it's just, again, failure to understand the level of significance, you know, the emotion that they're, they're going through. Don't say, well, things could be worse, right? You're trying to, like, give them, you know, some perspective, like, oh, well, let me tell you about my friend. Like, you think that's bad. Let me tell them about my friend that's going through this. Like, that is never helpful, right? Like, oh, well, yeah, I, I feel good now because knowing that guy's really suffering a lot worse than me. Like, it's not helpful. Don't say, at least it's nothing serious. It is. It's the most serious thing to them that they've personally ever gone through. Don't trivialize it. Last one, don't say, you are not still on medication, are you? I mean, think about it. You would never say that to a diabetic. Someone who's diabetic, well, you're not still on insulin, are you? Oh, man, I thought you'd be you know, further along. You'd be able to get to a point. I mean, this is why we talk about raising the stigma. Because in a lot of cases, medication will be absolutely necessary based on someone's biological makeup, the chemistry in their body, to stabilize them and for the rest of their life. And that's perfectly okay. God gave us brains to figure it out. <laughs> it's not a crutch. It's not a sign of weakness. You know, in the larger scale, and we touched on this the first week, there is sin in the world, therefore there's a whole lot of brokenness. And this is just one of those areas. Now, I want to give next steps for those of you that are in the valley, you're suffering, right? You're desperate. You're like, all right, I guess I'll go to church. Maybe the, there's, there's something there that I've missed. You're giving church, you're giving God a chance. Now, heads up, the first one, it's trite, right? But I feel like we have to start here. You know, my first suggestion, because some of you, right, you've never gone to the doctor, you've never talked to anybody. Maybe this is recent and you're trying to discern, am I sad and discouraged or is it full-fledged depression? And so let me be clear, the, the goal is never to just go to the doctor and say, hey, give me a pill that can stabilize me right away. That is never the primary option. So this first one is trite, but it's necessary to start here. 
And that's three things, eating right, sleeping right, and exercising, right? Like that's basic humanity, right? We learned that when we were growing up. But if you have some of these symptoms and you're not doing those things, at least start there. Am I eating right? Am I sleeping consistently, getting enough sleep? Am I exercising? And then if nothing changes, then you go to the, the next step. The second thing is, and I know many of you are like, yeah, yeah, I get it, you get, get help, all that. You're still not there. And so I came across uh, an assessment that's very helpful online, and so you can go to this right away. It's relatively brief. Uh, it's called a patient health questionnaire. Uh, patient.info is the website. Again, this is on that handout. And then the assessment is PHQ-9. So you go to patient.info, type in PHQ-9, a brief assessment based on where you are and your symptoms, if that matches clinical depression. Third is this. Can't say it enough. You've heard it. Decide to seek help. Decide to do something. Don't give up. You're not here by accident today. You are here because God wants to let you know he has more for your life. Seek help. You won't find healing on your own. You just won't. We're not wired that way. We can't. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then it says, do not lean on your own understanding. I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy for me to lean on my own understanding. I'm at least going to try what I think is best in my life. But God says, don't, don't go that route. Trust in God with all of who you are, your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And then in all your ways, acknowledge him. He's with you, and he will make straight your paths. There's also a mental health resource card. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, and we ran out. We reprinted those, and so every one of us should have that. That's an updated listing of counselors that are available, uh, residential treatment centers, uh, websites where you can gather information. We have to be equipped, and for those of you that are in the valley, call one of those numbers. Decide to, to seek help. See, when it comes to, to research and treatment, here's where it gets really interesting as we kind of turn the corner and close this message in this series, because... Again, it always comes back to what is the role of the church? What is the ideal? What should I expect? How is God trying to work in this mental illness in the context of the church? There's a lot of research that has been done. Many of you are familiar with what placebos are. And so when research is done uh, with certain people that are, are navigating a certain kind of illness, they'll give uh, one group of patients actual medication. And they'll give another group of patients uh, a placebo pill, which is a sugar pill. It technically should have no impact. It should not make them better at all. Of course, they don't tell them which is receiving which. And what they've seen, specifically with mental illness, those that receive the placebo pills uh, get better based on one factor. Keep in mind, a placebo pill is doing nothing. It should not impact them at all. But research on the placebo effect shows that much of their benefit comes from contact with research nurses. It's so interesting. See, in these trials, Nurses regularly visit everyone, all the patients, to check how they are doing. And the article, the specific article says they are nice nurses, bringing kindness, which if you're in the medical field, you should start there. Be a nice nurse, right? It's always a good thing. They are nice nurses, bringing kindness and understanding and words of sympathy to everyone in the study. And here's the result. This is amazing. The more visits you have from the nurses, the better you get. This is no accident. This is how God created us. We cannot get better on our own. And so it's no accident that we experience hope and healing, maybe for the first time, because we decide to let people in. We decide to let them in, to be connected. Is counseling important? Yes. Does medication play a role in getting better? Most of the time. But what will always be essential is going through life surrounded by people who care. If you're here today, we want you to know, we might not know you, but we absolutely care because we want to be the kind of church that God had in mind. 
This is the importance of a church family. Hope comes in the presence of others. I want to close this message, this series, with three scriptures that I should, think should be anchors you know, for all of us in our lives. Again, these are on the handout as well. So here's what you need to know today. God is not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. He's with you in it. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. He will lift us up. We can be fully dependent on him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. It says, let us run with, here it is, perseverance, the race marked out for us. What will this life require for every single one of us? Perseverance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, this is the how we persevere, the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him. What did he do? He endured the cross, required great endurance, unimaginable endurance, scorning the cross's shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what do we do in response to that? Verse 3, we consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We will grow weary. We will lose heart if we fail to consider the one who brings life, ultimate hope, and healing. So I want to encourage you today to consider Jesus, maybe some of you for the very first time. Don't give up. Your race that you're running right now is not in vain. Your past, God wants to redeem. It matters. Your journey now, your journey in the future matters because God wants to use you. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he wants to deliver you. Jesus' death on the cross, that was for your deliverance. He delivered David. We see in 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine, David says to God, you, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. Some of you need to claim that just like David did. And you turn to God, maybe some of you for the very first time said, you, Lord, are my lamp. I'm going, I'm going your way, right? I've exhausted all other dysfunctional options, but those are not lamps at all. God, I'm depending on you to light my way. You're the one that will turn darkness into light. You see, God's vision for your life, don't miss this, God's vision for your life is that you would find the light. There is light to be found. And maybe you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you've never experienced light. God wants to redeem it. He says, I have more for you. He wants your life to tell a story that reflects the hope and grace that you found in him because our world desperately needs it. It's broken. But we get to be a part of a church that points to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and say it's, it's for everybody. It's for everybody.